We are going to transition back into our time of the Word, time in Romans. It's been a fruitful study so far. We've looked at chapter 1 and chapter 2. We're entering into the latter part of chapter 3 as we started that last week. And just as a recap in this series, A Life in Christ, I'd like to just review where we've been. We've said these things. The purpose of the book is the glory of God seen in a united missionary church humbled together under grace. It's only when I understand sin rightly that I worship and magnify Christ appropriately. And last week we said that repentance was essential because it's the only way to be acceptable to God. And it's only possible by a heart changed by God's Spirit. So under those things, we move from the end of, towards the end of chapter 3 uh, into this text that we'll study today. It'll be in Romans 3, verses 21 I'm going to read through 26. The bulletin kind of took us through 31, which I encourage you to read. But I'm going to stop at 26, and then we'll pray and ask God to speak to us. If you need a Bible, they're in the back uh, on that table in front of the sound booth. This is what it says. Picking up from where we left off last week. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. As always, we read God's word. I invite you to pray. It's a simple prayer. If you've never done it, do it now. Just say, God, would you just speak through Pastor Craig? Would you just speak your words to my heart for my life that I might understand you do that and I'll do that for us collectively? Father in heaven, we praise you. We thank you for your word, for its truth. We thank you for this book of Romans that Paul penned by your spirit, that we can glean from it, prepare our hearts, uh, remove any distraction. Uh, We're so distracted as a people. We have many things on our mind, maybe even plans later in the day. And Father, I just pray that we'd hear from you. I pray that I would hear from you in my own heart and life. So, Father, just come before you. We beg of your spirit, certainly your mercy on us, and we pray that you would reveal yourself to us mightily. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Do you remember that? 1994, that, that scene, if you were alive then, that glove scene, O.J. Simpson trials, Cato Kalin, Robert Shapiro and Johnny Cochran, Marsha Clark, Judge Ito, the white Bronco, the chase that captivated millions of people. In fact, fun fact for you this week, it was said, and I don't remember this, but in looking into this, that Domino's Pizza said that their, their profits, the deliveries during that chase was just as high or higher as the Super Bowl Sunday. But if you were alive in 1994, you remember what started an 11-month trial over the O.J. Simpson murders. And that, that glove, that scene was there when they had him put that black leather glove on and it was too small for his swollen, giant football-playing hands. 
And you just knew. But the interesting thing about that story is Johnny Cochran stood up at the end and said, it doesn't fit. You must acquit. And we know what the jury did. They acquitted him. They acquitted him guiltless on those charges. And that was just so captivating because when you watched and when I watched, and again, it's hard to proclaim judgment, but everybody knew that he was guilty. The evidence was there. I think his look was shock when he left the courtroom. I remember even as I would have been, what, like a junior in high school, I think somewhere around there, and I remember seeing that, and it was just like this shock. Like this actually happened. He was acquitted of these murders. Media pandemonium. But everybody knew. All signs pointed to that, the evidence. Why would he run the way he did? And so he walked out an acquitted man. He walked out of the courtroom. But how did he walk out of there? And I would say not justified. That's for sure. He walked out shocked and never really free from the guilt. And if you know his story past, then you kind of know that he lived with this guilt and he continued to do these things. But the judge pronounced him justified. Justice had been served in our system. But he didn't walk out like he was and his life was in shambles. And that, friends, is a story like many people in their view of God. Many live like this before God. So I'm not sure if they actually need acquittal because they've done no wrong in their own eyes. And some knowing they do need some kind of acquittal, but they try to earn it themselves. And yet some still understanding exactly what God has done. That the evidence is there against the sinner. There is evidence against all of us, but we know exactly what God has done through Jesus Christ in justifying the believer. And so that's what Paul centers around in the text we read, that word justification. justification. That is the theological term that you and I need to know. And you would say, well, I didn't come to church in justification. That's a super important word that you need to know about. And so Paul is instructing the Romans in their churches on this word. By definition, this is what justification is. The basic biblical fact of biblical religion that God pardons and accepts believing sinners. On the one hand, not penally liable under punishment, and on the other, entitled, get this, entitled to all the privileges of someone who has kept the law. Paul wrote in Philippians 3, we read that as a scripture reading this morning, he said, as far as the law goes, I was completely righteous, I was perfect, I was blameless. He wasn't. We know he was sinful in that, but he was making a point. In Christ now, I am completely free. I'm justified, not by my own works, not by keeping of the law, but also I understand that God has freed me from the punishment that was due to me, and he has also given me the privilege of one who has, as if I've kept the law because Christ himself kept the law perfectly for us. You see, the doctrine of justification determines the whole character of Christianity as a religion of grace and faith. It displays God's justice in condemning and punishing sin, his mercy in pardoning and accepting sinners, and his wisdom in exercising both attributes harmoniously together in Christ. And this is where you and I, when we come to this doctrine or many doctrines like it, it should draw our hearts to praise because we understand what God has done. Luther went so far to say this, that a church that lapses from this crucial doctrine could scarcely be called Christian. So it's important. 
Because sadly, many churches have lapsed from that. Many of us have lapsed from this idea that we somehow can earn God's favor in salvation. And those who are in Christ, get this, those who are in Christ who know what grace is are not just declared not guilty, not just like OJ in that courtroom. This is just not like that. This is not guilty, but actually declared righteous by the divine judge in right standing with God. And who doesn't want right standing with God? So Paul, after he talks about our sin and our depravity and says, you can't earn anything by your own fleshly works, he leads us into this end of chapter three. And if these two previous chapters led to despair, the heaviness, the weightiness, this text ought to lead us to rejoicing. He says, but now, after that, we'll read just backwards those two verses that we latched on to last week in 19 and 20. Now we know that whoever has the law that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. But now righteousness is revealed. The righteousness of God is on display Now, what's interesting is if you look at our whole text, four times does that phrase come up, the righteousness of God. It comes up in verse 21, again in 22, comes up later in 25, and then again Paul writes it in verse 26. And what does it mean? It refers to God's fairness as judge, a right standing, a right way. Now, this is not God's holiness. That's different. God is perfect. God's righteousness, God is perfect in his holiness without sin. Christ was perfect in holiness. But righteousness has this idea of judge, this courtroom justice scene that God deals equitably with sinners, that he's fair. God's dealing with people. He punishes sin, but also he delivers people, his people that are under oppression. So he's always fair in his judgments. Right away, we have to note three things about our text this morning before we even really dive in to the text itself, and it's seen there. But the first thing you have to note is this passage is not about us. Romans 3.23, famous verse, exists in here. We like to latch onto that. We like to latch onto what follows. This passage is not about us. It's about God. It's about the righteousness of God. It's more about God than it is about you. Second, it's a public revelation of righteousness that God has displayed and seen in five places. In 21, it's manifested or revealed. Secondly, the law and prophets in the Old Testament have bore witness to it. They've all pointed towards it. So there's this type and shadow in the Old Testament that God, thirdly, put forward Christ. This was his doing. This was God who was acting, fourth and fifth, because he repeats it, God did it to demonstrate or show that he was a fair judge. God did this act of sending forth his son to demonstrate his righteousness. Why is this so important? Because we need to know that God did not show a new kind of righteousness that was not available before Christ. Often we think of the New Testament that way, that God revealed something totally unique and different, but what we need to understand is the Old Testament has always been pointing at Jesus. The Bible Jesus is always pointing at Jesus. It's the same righteousness that he showed Abraham and David. Nothing new. It has always pointed at Christ. This is the way that God was going to redeem man. Always pointing there. And this is the third thing we need to know, and this is the most important one to know. 
all of it, all of the righteousness of God comes and flows through Jesus Christ through faith in verse 22, redemption in Christ, verse 24, by his propitiation, we'll talk about that word, his sacrifice, and it comes to one based on faith in Jesus alone. None of God's past actions, so if you read the Old Testament, none of his past actions make any sense. None of those promises in the Old Testament make any sense apart from Jesus Christ crucified. None of them make any sense unless you know who the central figure of Scripture is, unless all of them are pointing to Jesus. So God reveals his righteousness and is manifested apart from the law. Now that's important. Paul is making a distinction against the law. We know the law of Mount Sinai given to Moses, the Ten Commandments, the law of Israel. You read back and, and people would say, well, Levitical laws and all that stuff doesn't apply. That stuff was to show people their need for redemption. That needed to be atoned for because they messed it up all the time. They could never keep the law perfectly, and it was never going to save them. And Paul says, in Christ, he is set apart from that. However, all of that has always been pointing to Jesus as the one who would redeem and restore. So man could never be saved on their own works. And that's what Paul is talking about at the beginning of Romans. People always ask this question then of Abraham and other Old Testament figures. So was Abraham... Just, who was justified by faith, that's what we know about him, it's written in the New Testament, we're going to look at it next week. Was he saved then by Christ, even though Christ came after? Yes, he was. He was fully saved by the blood of Christ, even though he came after, and all of God's promises to him were fulfilled in Christ. Same righteousness, though. Sin in the Old Testament needed to be punished by their sacrificial system. It needed to be atoned for. Even all the way back in the garden, the first shedding of blood was what? God's grace for Adam and Eve. He clothed them. He had to cover them in their nakedness when they stepped into sin. Some bloodshed of an animal had to happen for them to be covered. And so that's demonstrated throughout, but no sacrifice other than God himself. That's what didn't work in the Old Testament in terms of salvation. No sacrifice other than God himself sacrificing could ever give right standing to someone's sin, which is why Christ Jesus comes to earth perfect in holiness, perfect in every way without sin, God himself, and he needs to be the one who is sacrificed because he is the only righteous one the perfect lamb that was slain for us, and we are clothed in that righteousness. And in verse 22, it says it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe in him. No distinction. It's no distinction. And Paul's making that, if we've followed along so far, between the Jew and the Gentile. They had both in the Roman church, the Jew and the Greek. And he said, this isn't just for Jewish people anymore. This is for anyone. And for us modern day, this isn't for church people. This isn't for just church people. This isn't for rich people or, or educated people. This is for everyone. There's no distinction here. Everyone who trusts in Christ can have a saving faith for all who believe. Now we look at this verse and it seems repetitive. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Stop there. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It sounds like he's talking about the same thing here, but I think it's different The through faith speaks of the covenant loyalty of Jesus and his relationship with the Father. That Jesus was loyal in acting in this way to be this propitiation, the sacrifice for sin. And his faith towards us is the response back as a people, faith towards what God has done. Christ is faithful to us in the fulfillment of that covenant. 
to demonstrate that faith and trust back is what is called for in salvation, which begs the question this. Do you have a saving faith? That is a question for each one of us that sit in this room. Do you know that I have a saving faith? That I have the righteousness of God? That I, have, I am in right standing with God? That is the single most important question you could ever ask in your life. Not much, how much money do I have? Am I going to be able to retire? Not, am I, am I going to be free from cancer? And am I going to have a healthy life? Am I going to have a job, security? All these things is this question. Do I have a saving faith? I might have a faith, but do I have a, do I have a saving faith? A saving faith, one that truly believes that Christ died for our sin, and that through that act, you trusting that, that I could never get acquittal another way, any human way, that I am declared righteous before God, free from any guilt. And here's my sticking point in this. This legal declaration of righteousness achieves the redemption that is in Christ Jesus so that all are united with Christ by faith, are redeemed, saved, set free. This is what you would know, that I am set free from the slavery of sin. You are literally brought and bought out of the chains of sin. And you say, well, how can that be? I still sin. I still struggle with that. How can I know then if I have a saving faith? The Christian, those who have a saving faith, can know that I still will struggle in sin in this life and yet be confident that I have been fully acquitted of my crime and therefore can walk out of a courtroom without any fear of eternal prosecution because something has happened on my behalf. That's what the Christian knows who's been justified by faith, that I have no guilt. I walk out, not like OJ, who's stained in this stuff, but I walk out, yes, the evidence was there, but something has happened on my behalf that I walk out knowing that I have a saving faith, a righteousness before God. That is the question for you. Are you confident in that? And that is what Paul is speaking of when he speaks of propitiation, which, by the way, just a little insert in that word, it's one of the reasons we use the ESV translation because it's a word-for-word word over the NIV and others, phrase-for-phrase. Phrase. It has that theological word, which is a really important word. It's a little hard to understand. It's a kind of funny word to say, but it has that, and it means something. Propitiation is a sacrifice which takes away wrath. It is a wrath quencher. It satisfies God's anger, and God is angry at sin. The cross was that perfect wrath quencher to God. Now, I'm going to say something that is going to make many of us blink. Maybe your heart immediate pushback. And so I'm just begging of your grace and understanding, and that's why we pray before we get into the text. We don't like this. We're not accustomed to hearing this. It goes against some things you maybe have heard, but it is truth in terms of this understanding of this word. It's not this. It is not hate the sin but love the sinner. How many have heard that? We've heard that a lot. You hate the sin, but love the sinner. We hear it all the time, but it can't make sense in the biblical light. Here it is. God hates the sinner, and his wrath rests upon him. That's an uncomfortable truth. That's an uncomfortable thing 
when we embrace as, as, as a people and as a church and, and as a lost world, I would say, the love of God. You say, what? how can that be? How can you make that claim? How can God be loving and hate his creation? You have to remember, he's just. You can't put all of this in human terms. That's why it's hard. Listen, if God, just listen to this, if God loved me, but just didn't like, he just didn't like some of the things I did, his sacrifice would have been far less, something much lesser degree would have been sufficient. If he loved me and he just didn't like some of the things that I did, the sacrifice would be just way less. He wouldn't need to send his son, his very self, the only thing that could ever do this. Now I say that to my kids all the time. I do, I love them, but I just don't like the action. God has a totally different feeling towards sin. And this is why we struggle with that comment. He can't be around it. It angers him. We, as a people, are guilty rebels before him, doing out of our own flesh. And he is angry with us. You can't have the wrath of God in that way without his anger. Why? Because we have all fallen short. Verse 23, right? We've heard this. We know it well. If you ask an Iwana kid what their, their verse is, just say, go up to any Iwana kid. I just test this. Like, and say, tell me a verse. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. It's just like, it's great that they know that. So they know who they are. But a better way to understand verse 23 is that we all lacked that word, meaning that we lacked God's glory. That all people have lacked that about ourselves. Fallen image bearers, God's glory is usually not, and test this in the morning, not the first thing on your mind when you wake up. We're creatures of habit. God's glory is not often the first thing on our hearts. You and I are glory hounds. We seek glory in ourselves. We seek what we want to do often. That's usually what's on our mind. We have lacked that. We don't have God's glory in mind. And God is zealous for his glory. Interestingly enough, the kids are learning about that right now, that word they're going through, ABCs of God's character. They're learning about his zealousness today. And I hope they learn that God is zealous for his glory, that all that they do as they grow would be for his glory alone. So God is rightly angry at us glory hunters, and it deserves punishment. And any parent of a self-centered teenager, you know this, don't you? That deserves punishment. You can't just wrap the world around yourself and think the universe spins rightly around you and think that that doesn't deserve some kind of correction. I get texts every once in a while from my teenager, and I'm not throwing her under the bus in this, but by, by saying I'm not throwing her under the bus, I think I just threw her under the bus. <laughs> She's in Florida having a great time, though. I've gotten texts that, like, like even recently, just and, and this isn't to do this in her. I'm just as guilty in this. But she needed a battery charger. And I, I said, like, have, did you take it? Because I can't find it. And she's like, um, I need that. Whoa, I was asking because I was looking for you. I was, this is who we are. Like, this is for me. This is why we get upset with people, because you hurt me. This is about me. And I've said it before in weeks past. Life would be so much easier if it wasn't about us, which it's not if it was about God's glory. And so God is angered by this, rightly so. But here's the beauty. Here's what should draw us to praise in this text, and this is what Paul is aiming at. The one with the saving faith knows this, that it is from that awful truth 
that the gospel of Jesus Christ rescues me. The paradox of the gospel is this, as Luther rightly put it, God loves us even as he hated us in our sin. That's so mind-blowing that God loved us in spite of our sin. That's why he sent Jesus in the way that he did. And you can't soften God's wrath. If you do that, you diminish his justice, and therefore you minimize the sacrifice at the cross. You do. You look at that and say, well, that, that wasn't that big of a deal. That was everything in the deal. And you can't minimize that. And many do that. They believe the cross is a sign of love, which it is. I will not make that any more clear. That is. But it's also a sign of wrath. It's also a sign of God's judgment, which it is. And so here's where four people, groups, I would say two people groups in this room, and all of you fall into this category, one of them, two people groups with these two subgroups fall in. And so just think about which category am I in of these four? These are the four groups of people with this mindset on justification that these four groups kind of diverge, if you will, at the cross. Number one is those who deny the power of the cross, unbelievers. The whole thing's made up, it's not true, total spiritual blindness. Most of you are probably not in that category because you're here today. So faith isn't complete foolishness to you. But you may exist in one of these other three categories. The second one is this. Those who deny the power of the cross... You wouldn't say that, but claim belief. These are those who are earning their own righteousness, and Paul is writing to these people through works, claim Christ, but have never understood that Christ took the place of their sin. Maybe the global world's sin, but not your sin. Why? Because you really don't think that you need that. These are those, maybe some of you in this room, that have never understood the full gospel, the paradox I talk of, I just spoke of, that God put all of his wrath that was meant for you on his son to punish. That that's where you started, that he took all of that punishment that he placed on his son as if you were standing there in your place substitutionally, he did that for you. This group likely believes that, that first that God loves and that he is love before they would ever accept that God is angry with them. When the gospel and a saving faith must flip those two on their head. Yes, it is God's kindness that leads towards repentance, but repentance only comes by way of acknowledging what? The guilt. You have to be guilty to be repentant. You can't truly be repentant and never understand what you really did. Never acknowledge the sin. When we discipline our kids in this way, and they say, I'm sorry. Sorry for what? Sometimes you just know, right? Like, you don't even, you're not sorry because you're not acknowledging that. As believers, we have to first acknowledge that we are guilty. So this may be some of you. You never have fully understood what Jesus did at the cross. It's only love to you, not judgment and wrath. And it needs to be both. God demonstrated his love, but he did it for a reason. It needed to be done because of our sin. That's the second group. The third group are these. Some, many of us, these are people who believe and understand the power of the cross, that it rescued guilty rebels and declared them righteous before God. And these are in here who are truly born again and redeemed people, listen to this, rightly, completely justified. Completely justified. Pronounced guiltless because of Christ's payment. 
on the cross. Guilty people pronounced guiltless because of Christ's saving work, atoning bloodshed on the cross. And then you can pay back nothing. You can pay back nothing in that, but only live in the freedom of God's grace. And that is many of us. That's Paul's group. That is who he's after. This is what I want you to know. This is what about justification, that there's nothing that you can do because of Christ's payment, because of faith, because of salvation that you experience. There's nothing you could do to lose that. You can't be bad enough to lose that. You can't be good enough to earn that. There's just nothing. And you're pronounced completely justified. You walk out of that spiritual courtroom, you're going to stand before God one day, and Jesus is going to stand in your place, and you will be acquitted from your sin. You know that. I want you to know that. But then there's this fourth group of people. And this might be many of you in this room. These are people who are like the third group, who know Christ and have a saving faith. They believe in the power of the cross. They've experienced that saving faith. They know that Christ died for them, and they believe that and understand kind of grace. But here's, here's the catch. They have let, you have let, if I'm speaking to you, Satan have a field day with you in discouragement. These are people who live like OJ as a Christian. God is pronounced once and for all, and you walk out of that courtroom looking behind your back all the time for somebody to put guilt back on you. That might be many of you in this room, that you have a saving faith, but you always feel like you're never good enough for God. You carry guilt. You live partially justified, if you will. You walk around thinking that you're not good to be saved or that God couldn't approve of you. God's view of you is disappointment. Yet maybe you're declared righteous in knowledge, but you try to work and live like you owe God something. Although declared justified, you don't live like it. You don't feel like it, tangled up in guilt. And you're always looking around like, what, what, what am I stepping into now that God has a problem with? That's not always bad to look at what am I stepping now that God has a problem with. I want to live righteously. But I'm talking about the big scheme of how I feel before God. Am I confident in my justification? You know, I've referenced this story in a different way. When we took a vacation and Carrie and I were sitting in church, I just haven't referenced the point at which the, the false teaching came about. Carrie and I were on vacation. We were in a church setting. And our church, we love to do that and go visit different churches. Obviously, we don't get to do that a lot. And so as the, the guest speaker was teaching, he started unpacking this idea about prayer. And Carrie's always struggled that with Josiah, that uh, I think we've both been around the block. And if you have a sick child, you know that sometimes you first start with yourselves. This is something we did. You have that guilt that I'm talking about. And then you wonder, why isn't God answering our prayers for healing? Because both of us believe that God can heal Josiah in this way. And so he started talking about how believers don't pray boldly enough. Instantly, that struck a nerve with Carrie. Our kids happened to be in the row between us, kind of scattered about, and Carrie was all the way on the other end. I only say that because neither of us knew what each other was thinking during this teaching. And he talks about how, how the reason why our prayers aren't answered, and this is false, by the way, so you don't misunderstand this. The reason why your prayers aren't answered is because Satan has a legal accusation against you. And I just went, whoa, time out. This is why, if I say this is why it's good to have your Bibles with you, it's for this very reason. I went, I'm like, that doesn't sound right. I'm a pastor. I should, that doesn't sound right. But I have my Bible, and I'm like, I need to see it for myself. So I flipped to some passages, and I learned two things about that in confirmation. That, whoa, that's not right for two reasons. 
One, because we know that sometimes we pray in ways and God does not answer the way we want. I went right to 1 Corinthians 12 and I looked at Paul and I said, three times I pleaded for the Lord to take away the storm in my flesh. And guess what God said? No. So that's not true. So Paul here, he experienced that. That doesn't make God any less God. So that was one point. The other point was this. How does Satan have a legal accusation against a believer? How does he have that? He's got nothing. We are completely justified. And that teaching to us was, of course, false. I think I've told you the story. Both of us were like, this, somebody needs to shut this guy down. Kid you not, if you haven't heard this story, many of you have, immediately as we were both mutually thinking that, Carrie was so uncomfortable to the fact that she wanted to go out the door and it was chained. Talk about a feeling like, where am I going to go? She has Josiah. Kid you not, the fire alarm went screaming off in that school. Now, here's, here's the way of the world. This is the way this works. They probably thought in that teaching, and this is why Satan's so crafty, man, God was trying to shut us, or Satan was trying to shut us down. I'm like, no, that was God. <laughs> that one was God. And we ended up leaving, and it was just like, again, maybe that attitude of us leaving wasn't right, but we couldn't stand for that. God has no legal accusation against a believer. Satan has no legal case against those who are in Christ. The evidence is all there. And yes, we are guilty of sin. But here's what Paul is writing. By faith in the resurrected Christ, in the power of the atonement there, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and mutually are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's what justifies. We are united with him in his death and resurrection. You are completely justified, completely. No risk of another trial. Nothing you can do to ever earn God's favor. And that's how you need to live. You need to move from that fourth category into that third category. There's no legal case. If you're in that first or second category, you need to move to that third category by asking that question. Do I have a saving faith, a right standing with God? And so as we close, these are just four things, or three things rather, that affect the way we live. Kind of an application of this banner of what Jesus said, the gospel of the kingdom is near, repent and believe, the cycle of repentance and belief. Number one is this, all need to be justified. All of us need to be made right before God. And Jesus Christ himself came to do that as an offering, a sacrifice, and all need to turn towards the cross. And you do need to ask God for forgiveness of your sin because God's anger is real. He is just, but so is his love and grace. So repent and believe. That's the first thing. The second is this. All of us need to understand that the cross was a place of substitution. That's why you don't truly know Christ a saving faith if you don't and have never really understand that, yes, I do, I come to church, and Christ died for the sins of the whole world, but you need to translate that to you, your sin. He substituted in your place. Christ took what was for you, and his sacrifice means our life in return, not in payment, but he did that for me, that's why we do what we do. It flows out of a life of understanding of that gospel message. So I need to repent and believe of living life for myself and not for the glory of the cross. The third, and this is the big one, you and I need to understand the principle of debt, spiritual debt, 
And I'll pack it this way, unpack it as owing in two parts. And this is that fourth group of people. Both of these deeply affect the way that you live. Number one is this. God doesn't owe you anything. And the second one is this. You don't owe God back for the debt that was paid. I'll start with this one. Now, some of you might be sitting here for numerous reasons, I don't know, and you're just angry. Some of you might be sitting here and you are just angry. It is under the surface. And some of you might just be angry at God. You might be angry at God. You might even know that you're angry at God, but you're angry because of the life that God has given you, the life that God has seen and known about, the experience that you've had, the hand that you've been dealt, all the things that life has thrown your way. It's unfair. God is unfair. Why doesn't he just, I heard this from somebody just this morning, he dealt you a raw hand and you know what? I get that. I can kind of understand that. I didn't grow up like that, but there are things in my life that I wish were different. So I can kind of understand that. And some of us are just angry at God. But let me ask you this. What does God owe you? What does he owe you? Why you? Why are you so important? What makes you think you are worthy of such a pain-free life? What is so special about you? Man, that's a tough thing to get over, isn't it? Ourselves, to get over ourselves in that way. That's why we're angry at God. That's why when things happen in life, we think God is unfair. Believe me, trust me, I've, I've, I've thought these things at the same time in my own life. God, why would you do this? I can't understand this. Why would you put this? You say you love me, but why this? Trust me, I get that. But why are you so special that God owes you? He is God. The fact that we are not all that we think we are and that God owes us nothing is hard to get over. That he is completely just to punish the guilty. And I'm not also, the New Testament wouldn't say that either, that all of the things you're experiencing are punishment. They're not. God disciplines those he loves. And some of that is just him uniting you with the, the, the suffering of Christ in that. And yet the beauty of the gospel that he owes us nothing and he offers us everything. And it only comes by faith, faith in the Son, faith. So I encourage you, if that's you today, keep trusting in God in his goodness. Keep trusting that even though life has dealt you what you would consider a bad hand, God is gracious and good. Faithful living only for him and what he desires and not what we want and we need to live in grace. But there's a second failure to understand the spiritual debt principle, if you will, and that's I owe. Some of us in that fourth category are living like you owe God something still. You're not living in grace fully. You're not understanding justification fully. You're living your life as if you still owe something to God. Example, we have some great neighbors. This is just an example, or maybe you can't relate because you're like, I don't have great neighbors. We have really great neighbors, and we love to help them. We love, love to help them. And sometimes when we help them, they always feel like they have to pay us back. They like invite us to dinner and we need to do this. And we're like, just stop. You know, if you experience that, you know what I'm talking about. It's just like, you don't need to do anything. It's not a gift if you keep having to repay it. And some believers are living like that. God has given you a gift of grace and you're living like you got to pay him back in it. Like, well, I still got to do things rightly. It's like the thing that you screwed it all up. That's why I gave you the gift. 
And sometimes my neighbors actually frustrate me because I'm like, guys, like, stop it. You don't need to do anything. And I think God says to us, stop it. You don't need to do anything extra. It's not your works that saved you. It's your righteousness. The Bible says in the Old Testament, it's like filthy rags to me. Even the good things that you think are so good about you, like presentable before God and God's like still ugly. That's why you need Jesus. It still needs to cover that. And we feel like we always have to pay it back. And you know what? When you do this with God, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. You know if you do this. What are you talking You know, because you feel exhausted. I can never achieve. I can never earn. I'm working all the time. I'm trying to do this. God's still disappointed in me. And you're working out of your own flesh. You need to stop. By faith in Christ, you are completely justified. And you can live to please him, yes, but you cannot live to repay him. So stop. Surrender that today. Repent and believe God in that. The righteous shall live by faith. It's a faith journey. And I don't trust in the doctrine of justification to be saved. I trust in the doctrine so that I can live free and guiltless. That's why I trust in that. Praise God for the cross. This is what he writes in verse 26. He tells us, Paul does, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might, God, this is about God, be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God did not merely dismiss the charges against the guilty. He, his righteous demands were met in Jesus' death. God proved to be just in not overlooking sin. It needed a punishment, but he also chose to act as justifier for the one who has faith in Jesus. I can pronounce you guiltless in Christ. Our hearts ought to be moved as we marvel at the wisdom of God in that. Our hearts should be drawn to worship. Even when you and I come in here wrestling in chains, of our own manufactured religion, wrestling in chains of what we owe God, and you and I should move our hearts to worship for what God has done, like the words of this childhood hymn, at the cross of Jesus, pardon is complete, love and justice mingle, truth and mercy meet. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you that you are the just and the justifier that you alone, by the power of your hand, the power displayed at the cross, sent forth your Son to show your righteousness, that you would not look past sins, that in your divine forbearance, you would not just pass over sins as you had in the past, but you would put it all on Christ, that you would put all of that anger and wrath on your only Son, whom you loved, in our place, so that he could die for us, for the forgiveness of sins, for the right standing before you. And Father, in that, when we trust that, we are completely justified. Father, help us in that. If there is one that doesn't know this, that they would know, yes, that you have wrath on the sinner's head, but that you love at the cross in the same way. Father, draw those to repentance in that way, that they would cry out to you in forgiveness and that they would trust you by faith. And Father, for those of us who struggle with guilt, that that we would know that Satan has no legal accusation against us, that we don't live in guilt and shame. That's the beauty of the cross. That's the power of the gospel. That is grace. And Father, let us who understand that, who live freely in grace, who desire to be obedient and sacrifice, let us encourage others 
with that gospel message. Father, help us as a people stand in awe of what you've done at the cross. If we need to respond to that, let us respond and surrender, Father, that all of life is about you and the glory of your great name. May we worship you in your grace. May we worship Christ and exalt his name. And we pray these things in his wonderful, saving, redemptive name. And all God's people said, I want to leave you with this. I try not to read from Romans as a benediction because I just don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but this is too good to not read this today. This is what Paul writes when you get to chapter 8, which is the news for us as Christ followers now. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Go and live a life walking in the spirit. Have a blessed day and go in peace.